Church family, I invite you to open up in your copy of God's Word to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 11 is where we're going to be today. Genesis 11. We're going to look at verses 1 through 9. The title of our message is God's Sovereignty Over the Nations, One Final Authority. Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, God's sovereignty over the nations, one final authority. I'm going to read this passage for us. You follow along in your copy of God's Word. This is the Word of God. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. It's the word of the Lord for his church today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you open up our hearts and minds to receive the truth of your word, humbly and with an eagerness to put into practice what we learn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week we looked at the first part of a new section of Genesis, which begins at chapter 10, verse 1. Chapter 10, verse 1 says, These are the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. And then what followed from chapter 10, verse 1, is what is often called the table of nations. God gives us a listing of all the nations of the world at that time, all of which trace their ancestry back to Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That are the son, those are the sons of Noah. We said last week that we are all a part of one family tree. I hope you've thought about that throughout this past week. As, you, as you've gone to the grocery store or gone to work or gone to a ball game or, or gone to school or you've seen the people that you've thought, this is my family. We're all part of one family tree. Every person, every people group, every language, every nation, we're all descended from Adam and then from Noah. And chapter 10 told us that these nations spread out over the earth. Chapter 10 verse 5 told us that the sons of Japheth spread in the land, each with his own language by their clans and their nations. Chapter 10 verse 20 told us that the sons of Shem were divided by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Chapter 10 verse 31 told us that the sons of, of Shem were divided by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. I think I may have said Shem twice. I was supposed to say Ham one of those times. I'm sorry. And then, if you look at the very last verse of chapter 10, chapter 10, verse 32, we find these words. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So when we get to the end of chapter 10, it seems as though everyone has done exactly what God commanded Noah and his sons to do when they got off the ark. Do you remember what God commanded them to do? Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. 
be multiply, be fruitful, fill the earth. When we get to the end of chapter 10, it seems like humanity maybe learned its lesson <laughs> from the flood. Hey, you know what? We really ought to do what God says. I mean, Look at, look at what happens when you don't do what God says. Um, there's judgment. And so we've learned our lesson. Now we're going to do everything that God has said. But chapter 11 comes in and says, not so fast. The people apparently chose to obey God's commands to multiply, but they didn't choose to obey God's command to fill the earth. These nine verses in Genesis chapter 9 back us up and zoom us in on what took place to get to the point where the nations that came from Noah spread abroad on the face of the earth after the flood. These nine verses provide for us the biblical account of what's often called the Tower of Babel. Really, it's the whole city. We often think about just the tower, but if you notice, there's actually a city that's built as well. As we study these verses, I think we'll learn this. Attempts to usurp the authority of God ultimately lead to a display of God's sovereign authority. Attempts to usurp. That means to go in and try to take the position of somebody else, to pull them down from their position and, and overtake them in that position. Attempts to usurp the authority of God will ultimately lead to a display of who, in fact, is in charge. God. A display of God's sovereign authority. I share with you last week that chapters 10 and 11 of Genesis seem to focus our attention on the sovereignty of God over the nations. That seems to be one of the main themes that we see in chapter 10 and 11. In the first half of, excuse me, in chapter 10, we saw God's sovereignty displayed in the one family tree that makes up all the nations, to which all the nations belong. In the first half of Genesis 11, we see God's sovereignty over the nations displayed in the truth that there's only one final authority over the peoples of the world. And I know that sounds like a simple truth, but it's so important for us to remember because it's so easy for us to forget that there is one final authority over all the peoples of the world. Let's look at a little context this morning, and then I want to share with you some truths that we need to see and believe and apply to our lives as followers of Christ from this passage. Do you remember back in chapter 10, verse 21 through 31, we saw something interesting when we looked there at the descendants of Shem. Shem had several sons. One's name was Arpachshad. Arpachshad had a son named Sheila. Sheila had a son named Eber. And Eber had two sons. You remember what their names were? It was Joktan and Peleg. Joktan and Peleg. Those were the sons of Eber. The table of nations in chapter 10 gave the sons of Joktan, traced the sons of Joktan out, but it kind of didn't tell us much about Peleg. Now, the sons of Peleg are coming in chapter 11, verses 10 through 26, but we're not there yet. But chapter 10 did provide us with some interesting information about this son named Peleg. Chapter 10, verse 25, tells us that in the days of Peleg, the earth was divided. You see that, chapter 10, verse 25, in the days of Peleg, the earth was divided. What's that mean? Well, some have taken that to mean that in the days of Peleg, there was a continental shift. There was this big, massive movement of of the land mass that God had created, this big continental shift. Um, but it's very unlikely that that took place in the days of Peleg, that that's what this means. Not saying that there was never any kind of continental shift that happened, but if it did happen, it probably happened in the days of the flood. If it had happened, this big continental shift in the days of Peleg, it probably would have caused mass human, mass human destruction pretty much like another flood. So that's probably not what the text is referring to in chapter 10, verse 25, when it says, in the days of Peleg, the earth was divided. 
What else could it mean? The most likely interpretation is that it's referring not to the, the land itself, but to the people who inhabited the land. The people who inhabited the land. There was a division that took place. The people who inhabited the land were divided in some way during the days of Peleg. Well, how did that happen? That's where chapter 11 comes in. Chapter 11, remember, takes us back into chapter 10 and zooms us in on one particular point in time. God divided up the people by confusing their languages. It most likely happened in the days of Peleg. Why did he do that? Why did God divide up the people by confusing their language? It was because the people rebelled against his command to fill the earth. It's a very clear command. Multiply and spread out. Fill the earth. And this rebellion by them was a willful rebellion. We know it was willful because the text tells us in chapter 11, verse 4, that their stated reason for building the city and the tower was so that they would not, quote, be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. That's the reason that they built the city and built the tower was so that they would not spread out, which is the exact thing God told them to do, spread out, willful rebellion. We know that they knew God's command to multiply and fill the earth. Uh, One, because Shem and Noah, Noah and Shem, father and son, were most likely still alive during the days of Peleg. The events of the Tower of Babel probably happened, like I said, during the days of Peleg, which means they only happened about four generations after Noah and his son stepped off of the ark. Peleg was Shem's great-great-grandson. And according to these genealogies we have here, both Noah and Shem were still alive when the events of the Tower of Babel took place. Remember, they were still living a little bit longer than we live today. Noah lived 950 years. And so they knew. I mean, the very people who God had given the command to were still alive when this took place. So there's some context. There's a little bit of background to this story we call the story of the Tower of Babel. What do we learn from it? Let me share with you four truths. Simple, but I think very important truths this morning. The first is this. God's supremacy is unreachable. Church family, God's supremacy is unreachable. We think about the supremacy of God, how high and exalted he is. It is unreachable. Verse 1 tells us the whole earth had one language and the same words. And then verse 2 tells us that as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Shinar would have most likely been in modern-day Iraq. The word to note here, though, is the word settled. That's the most important word here. Because that shows us they're doing exactly the opposite of what God had told them to do. They settled. God had told them to fill the earth, but here we see the descendants of Noah settling. And then notice what their plan is. Verses 3 and 4. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole earth. Friends, (laughs) arrogance and pride and an inward focus always will drive us away from the will of God. Their plan was to build a city and a tower. There's nothing inherently wrong with building a city or building a tower. God even portrays his people later in the Bible as a city. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. God is not opposed to cities, 
but he is opposed to disobedience to his clear command. The problem wasn't with the construction project themselves, but with the purpose behind these projects. Their goal was to build a tower which reached to the heavens. Why? So they can make a name for God? No, for themselves. Their goal was to build a city so that they could stay in one place and not be dispersed over the face of all the earth. In other words, their motivation was self promotion, and outright rebellion against God. They wanted to make their name great, and they wanted to disobey the command of God. I want you to notice for just a minute the similarity between their actions and the first sin in the Garden of Eden. What did, what did Satan, the serpent, what did he tempt Eve with? It was the ability to be like God, right? To to rise up and to take the place of God. He tempted Eve to overstep the boundaries of being human and try to reach some sort of God-like status. And that's exactly what we see people doing in Genesis chapter 11. They're reaching up to God, but not to worship Him, but to be like Him, to take His place, to steal His glory, to make a name for themselves. The problem is that only God's name is worthy of true greatness and honor and glory and praise. Over and over again in the Bible, God's name is declared to be great. Isaiah chapter 63 verse 12 says that God parted the Red Sea, quote, to make for himself an everlasting name. A couple of verses later, Isaiah chapter 63 verse 14 says that God led the people through the wilderness, the people of Israel through the wilderness, quote, to make for himself, he's actually speaking myself, a glorious name. God did it to make for himself a glorious name. And both Jeremiah and Nehemiah, in recounting God's deliverance of the people of Israel from Egypt, they both say that he did it so that he could make his name great, to make a name for himself. Really, the only time in Scripture I believe that we see someone besides God's name being made great is Abraham and King David. But in their case, it's clearly God who is making their name great for his glory through their obedience to God's supremacy rather than them trying to make their own name great so that people would make much of them. There's a difference when God makes your name great because you are bowing down in worship to him. And that's what happens with Abraham. That's what happens with King David. But everywhere else in Scripture that we see someone's name being made great, it is God, God's name. Now what happened when Adam and Eve tried to be like God? What happened? What happened when they tried to, to, to reach his supremacy? They couldn't do it, right? They fell short. What happened when the people of Genesis 11 tried to reach the heavens and usurp the supreme rule of God by making a name for themselves? Couldn't do it. They fell short. How short? <laughs> so short that God had to come down just to see their attempt at reaching him. There is no doubt that there is great irony intended in the words of verse number 5. 
The people are building up this great tower. They're reaching up to make a name for themselves, and they probably think they are doing just such a fantastic job. And then the text says that the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. Obviously, the Lord can see everything. He could see the tower from the heights of heaven. What's the point here? The point that is that it was so minuscule compared to the greatness of God. Oh, oh, let me come down to see this really great tower that you're building. Not going to happen. They're not going to be able to usurp the supremacy, the authority of God. Which, the text tells us, this great tower God came down to see which the children of man had built. I mean, they thought they were going to be so great because their tower was going to be so high, but God had to come down just to see it. And then we see the, if I could say it this way, the humanity of humanity emphasized, which the children of man had built. It's in God's tower. It's in the children of man doing it under God's leadership and power. It's just the children of man. Not the children of God, the children of man. Their humanity is emphasized, I think, as a contrast between who we are as humans and who God is as God. God had to come down to see the work of man because after all, despite all of their effort, it was still merely the work of man and God was still God. The height of this great tower was nothing, nothing compared to the height of God. Friends, the supremacy of God is unreachable. We need to be reminded of that because, man, there's just something in our, in, our, in our wicked hearts that just thinks that we can somehow get the upper hand sometimes, that we can just defy God. But his supremacy is unreachable. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22 says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. And yet, how often do we try to make a name for ourselves? How often do we do the things we do with the goal of self-promotion? How often do we reject the instructions of God because we have our minds set on our personal goals, our personal plans, our personal dreams? We say, who is it? Who is it that's going to tell me what to do? Who is God that he can tell me what to do and how to live my life? Friend, he's God. That's who he is. And there's no one like him. So God's supremacy is unreachable. The second truth that we see is this. God's authority, church, is undeniable. God's authority is undeniable. Listen, if this passage is screaming anything to us, it is that God is in the position of authority. What happens when God comes down to see this act of rebellion? Well, simply put, he stops it. He stops it. They don't continue. In verses 3 through 4, the people spoke. In verse 5, God sees what's going on. And then in verse 6 through 7, God speaks. And notice what he says. He says, behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Stop right there for just a minute. This is not God being scared. Okay? This is not God saying, oh no, the people they're getting so powerful that they're eventually just going to overthrow me. They're eventually going to reach the heavens and they're eventually going to overthrow me. Nothing that they do will be impossible. That's not, that's not what God is saying. This is God saying, these people, their hearts are bent 
on evil. And if they all keep working together for evil, evil purposes, the extent of the evil that they're going to do is going to know no bounds. And so I'm going to intervene before it gets too bad. That's what God's doing. It's almost an act of, of mercy and grace here. It's an intervention that's going to protect them from doing even worse things than they could do if they're split up. It's kind of like police breaking up a destructive riot. It's actually a good thing, right? Because if it continues, the harm done is just going to grow and grow and grow. And so people's got people, the people need to disperse because together the evil just is multiplying. Now pick back up with God's word in verse 7. God says, come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Again, we see the irony here, which I think points to God's undeniable authority. The people had said, come, let us make bricks. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower. Let us make a name for ourselves. And then God turns around and says, come, let us go down and stop them. That's my word, stop them and turn them around from rebellion to compliance. See what God's doing? He's showing who is in authority. The people say, let's go do and do whatever we want to do. And God says, you can say whatever you want, but I've got the final word. Even if we fast forward, we see that God continued to have the final say with this city in the future. It seems that later, this city became the city of Babylon. Babel became Babylon. And here's what scripture says about this wicked city. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13 through 15. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, that's the grave, to the far reaches of the pit. And then Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 53. Though Babylon should mount up to heaven, and though she should fortify her strong height, yet destroyers would come from me against her, declares the Lord. Church, God's word leaves absolutely no doubt as to who has the authority. It is God. Nowhere in the process of humanity's rebellion against God is there even a question as to who is in control. Listen, God might have given humans the freedom to choose between right and wrong, but he did not give humans the freedom to ever usurp his ultimate authority. We like to think that we are free to do whatever we want to do, to be whoever we want to be, to be our own selves. But in the words of one commentator, quote, the Tower of Babel again puts man's intentions in question. He is not master of his own destiny. Well, if that doesn't fly right in the face of society in which, which we live, I don't know what does. Church family, this truth ought to humble us, and it ought to lead us to repentance and obedience. Repentance, if there be any wicked way in us, any ignoring, any rebellion against the clear commands of God in our lives. And then it ought to lead us to humble obedience. It would be far better if we would just submit to the authority of God rather than pretend like we can do whatever we want, whenever we want. They wanted to make a name for themselves, but God gave them a name that meant the opposite of what they wanted, right? God confused their language, which led to their city being called Babel. 
And that's a word that sounds like the Hebrew word for confused. Which means that instead of them building a city which would bring to mind their greatness, they end up building a city which would bring to mind their failure. Confusion. Division. Having to leave off the project. They made a name for themselves, but I like how one theologian put it. He said, they made a name for themselves, all right. A name of shame. A name of shame. And that's what happens whenever we pursue self-promotion, try to usurp the authority of God, disregard the words of the Lord, what's it going to bring into our lives? It's going to bring the shame that sin always brings. God had the final laugh, so to speak. Church, those people might not have been able to understand one another when God got finished with them. But I think, I think there was all one thing that they were at least in agreement on, even if they couldn't understand one another. That they weren't in charge. That there was a God who was ruling and reigning over the world that he had made, and he had the final authority. It didn't belong to them. You know how we need to be reminded of that truth every single day. For me, maybe not for you, but for me, I need to be reminded of that moment by moment, second by second, so that I will submit my life to the authority of God. God's supremacy is unreachable. God's authority is undeniable. Number three, God, uh, excuse me, human rebellion is unsustainable. Human rebellion is unsustainable. What was the result of this great plan, this great people to build this great city, great tower based on human rebellion? Well, they stopped. They left off building the city. Look at verse 8. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Listen, because the supremacy of God is unreachable, and because the authority of God is undeniable, then human rebellion is unsustainable. And I'm not going to spend much time on this point, but I just want to make this simple point that human rebellion will not last forever. It won't. God sees rebellion and he will not tolerate it forever. Although their plan was to reach the heavens with the tower which was made for themselves and by themselves, one person that I read pointed this out and I thought it was a very wise observation. You know the only thing that actually reached the heavens in this story? Was their sin. I don't know if I've ever thought about it that way. There was something that reached the heavens. It was their sin. And friend, God sees our sin. He notices our sin. And sin, rebellion against him, does not go unpunished. I don't know how long God let the people build their city and build their tower, but they didn't finish it. God put a stop to it. And the same is true with all rebellion against God. If you're living in rebellion against God today, in some area of your life, I don't know how long God will let you continue living in that rebellion, but I can guarantee you it won't be forever. The best thing that you can do is to turn from your rebellion before it's too late to repent of your sin and believe in God's plan of salvation. God has provided a way for us to be saved from the guilt and the shame that we incur through our self-promotion and through our willing rebellion against God and His ways. 
And that salvation is found in none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God's Son, who died on the cross to take our punishment upon Himself so that we could be forgiven of our rebellion against God. And one day, God's going to put a final stop to human rebellion when He casts Satan and all who belong to Him in the eternal lake of fire. But those who repent and believe in Jesus before they die, before Jesus comes back, will escape that second death and will live forever with God. Friend, human rebellion is unsustainable. You will not be able to go on living that way. God will one day, maybe sooner, maybe later, only he knows, but God will one day put a stop to it and trust his word. You want to be on God's side when he finally puts a stop to human rebellion. There's one more truth I think we need to see from Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. And it has to do with God's plan for humanity and ultimately with God's plan of salvation. Listen, God's supremacy is unreachable. God's authority is undeniable. Human rebellion is unsustainable. And God's plan is unstoppable. I love this. I love this. I love this about this passage. I love this about all of God's word. God's plan is unstoppable. We see this truth in two ways. The first way we see this truth is revealed in the fact that what God told them to do, guess what happened? They ended up doing in the end. Remember the original command? Multiply and fill the earth. Earlier I said that God stopped their rebellion, but God didn't just stop it. He reversed it. I love that. God didn't just stop them from doing what they were trying to do. He completely reverses their plan. Look at verse 9. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them. The Lord scattered them over the face of all the earth. Listen, in the end, God completely reverses their stated goal with the result that his plan was accomplished. Whose plan failed? Man's plan. Whose plan failed? prevailed God's plan. And that's the way it always happens. They didn't want to become scattered, but guess what? God scattered them. God's plan to fill the earth with people was unstoppable. But that's only one part of God's plan. There's more of God's plan that proves unstoppable in his word. I said we see this truth in two ways. The first is by zooming up, which we just did in this passage. They didn't want to scatter God ended up scattering them. But the second is by zooming out. Remember, God promised in Genesis chapter 3 to send a deliverer. And then if we jump ahead to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, we will learn that this deliverer will come through the line of Abraham and will bless all the families or all the clans of the earth. But let me ask you a question. If God scattered the people into various languages, how could the deliverer then come through one people group and one language and yet still bring salvation to all the peoples? Like, was God working against himself when he made many languages there in Babel? If God's ultimate goal for humanity is to unite into one body of people, a multitude who will worship him forever, then was God working against himself by dividing the people into many groups? Not at all. (laughs) Not at all. God is too supreme for that. 
His authority is too great for his plan to be thwarted by human rebellion. As the psalmist said in Psalm chapter 135, verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth and in the seas and all deeps. God's plan is unstoppable. You see, God may have created many languages at the Tower of Babel. God may have divided the peoples of the earth in the days of Peleg, but God said this later on, many years later, in Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 9. He says, for at that time, talking about sometime in the future, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. And then came that great day in Acts chapter 2. Two, where there were gathered in Jerusalem Jews from every nation under heaven, Scripture says. And Peter and the other apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit. They preached the gospel of Jesus, and all the people were amazed because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And Acts chapter 2, verse 7 through 12 says, And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear? I want you to think about the confusion at Tower of Babel. Think about them going, we can't understand anybody. What's going on? And now here we have in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, they're going, all these people are Galileans. How do we all from all of these different nations hear and understand them? Each in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God and all were amazed and perplexed saying to one another what does this mean what is going on church I'll tell you one thing it meant it meant that the plan of God was unstoppable God has always had a plan to rescue sinners from their sin and the rebellion of one people resulting in the making of many peoples was not in no way going to thwart going to mess up God's plan that he had had from the beginning And this church ought to give us confidence to not rebel against the commission of our king, but to obey the commission of our king who said, go and make disciples of all nations. The nations that were scattered at that rebellious city called Babel are now being united into the new city, the holy city called the New Jerusalem, who is the bride of Christ, who is the church, who are the people of God. And they're being united as they repent of their own rebellion and as they place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for their sin, who's been raised from the dead, and who is seated now at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Think about making a name for ourselves, whose name is the name that is above every name it is Jesus the text in Ephesians says not only in this age but also in the one to come there's only one who has ultimate supremacy only one who has ultimate authority only one whose plan is unstoppable and that is the Lord Jesus Christ but church the peoples of the world will only be united to Christ and to the rest of God's people if they hear the good news of which we are speaking about today They will only be united if they hear the gospel of Jesus. So we've got to go. We've got to go to these nations which were scattered at Babel. 
We must tell them that the God that we all have rebelled against has sent His only Son to rescue us from our rebellion. We must tell them the good news that the God who is reigning on high, who is so high above us, has stooped down so low to save us, so low that He put His Son on a cross so that we could be forgiven and be a part of His eternal family. Have you believed in Jesus for salvation? Have you? Have you received his free gift which he purchased through his blood? And if you have, are you giving your life for the cause of Christ? Are you giving your life, your time, your energy, your resources, are you giving your life to make known his supremacy, his authority, his saving, unstoppable plan of rescue to all nations. Attempts to usurp the authority of God ultimately lead to a sovereign display of God's authority. And praise God, he has displayed his sovereign authority by carrying out his plan to bring salvation to the nations through the death and resurrection of his one and only son. So I can't help but think of any other words to close this sermon that are better than this. To our great and sovereign God, to quote the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians, to our great and sovereign God, be glory. Be glory in the church. That's the people united together. In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Your word is clear. Your word is true. There is no one like you. You rule and you reign and you have your way. You will do what you will do. You will save who you will save. You will make the people to the people that you want them to be. And you will gather around your throne one day, people from every language, tribe, and nation, to declare the glory of you and of your Son. And God, right now, you are making that glory and your authority known through your church as your church takes up the mantle of the gospel and proclaims that we serve the one true God. And that even though he is so high that he has to come down to see the futile attempts at man to reach him, he loves us so deeply that he has bowed down so low to humble himself by sending his son to rescue us from our sin and our shame. God, if there's someone here who's never believed this gospel of Jesus, I pray that today you would draw their hearts and they would ask you to save them from their rebellion. And God, I pray that we as a church would confidently walk out into our world engaged in your unstoppable plan. Not scared, not lacking boldness, but humbly submitting to your rule and reign in our lives. And God, may we worship you every step of the way. God, even as we sing in just a moment, God, remind us of how worthy you are of glory. God, we don't want to lift up a tower to you to make a name for ourselves, but God, we do want to lift up hearts of worship to you to declare that your name is great. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.